You're listening to the Crossridge Women Podcast. The following is teaching audio from our fall 2023 study in the book of Nehemiah. For more about us and to access our resources, you can find us at crossridge.church forward slash wstudy. Okay, last week when we left off in chapter one to three, we recognized that there was this work that needed to be done. God's people are in, were in exile. Um, a Persian king, Cyrus, has allowed some to come back about 94 years before this happened. They rebuilt the temple um, over time. But Nehemiah hears that the people are in trouble and shame and that there is work to be done. He knows that what needs to be done for God's people so that they are living according to his plan and in the covenant, uh, obedient, covenant obedience, is that the wall of Jerusalem needs to be rebuilt. He, his intention is to rebuild the wall, which will rebuild the city. And then he, we're going to see he wants to rebuild this people and bring them back into covenant obedience as he knows they should be according to uh, the plan of God. Um, and so we made this interpretive jump. We said, okay, the work for Nehemiah is this wall. Um, but when we think about it, we can, we can think about kingdom work, right? Uh, Nehemiah was building this city of Jerusalem, and uh, we talked about ways that through history we've sort of made this interpretive jump to, to think about how we build the kingdom of God, and we do that through his body, the church. So on one level, just as a, a bit of a review, and, and maybe it's not review, maybe I'm saying it for the first time, but we can think that we all have this kingdom work. We all have the same kingdom work in that God wants all people to be reconciled to himself, right? And and he invites us all to be a part of that. We can spread the news of Jesus Christ and the gospel and salvation and what he has done and who Jesus is um, to everybody that we meet. We can work with God in that sort of big kingdom work that we are all a part of. And then if you bring it down a level, we can think that there's sort of this specific place and time where God has put you and he wants to do kingdom work in you and through you and in the people that you sort of come into contact with so this sort of looks like where has he placed you in your life okay some of you are um, have have a job and you're going to the office every day and this is where God's asking put put you and asking you to do some kingdom work. Maybe um, you are caring for older relatives and God is saying, this is where you're doing your kingdom work. Or maybe you're caring for young ones and and God has put you there to do kingdom work. Um, We know Colossians says, whatever you do, work at it as to the Lord in the name of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we could say that as followers of Christ, as believers in Jesus, everything we do is now kingdom work. We have that opportunity. Uh, We can do it with kingdom values. If we're working a business, we can show integrity that comes from kingdom values. If we are caring for very young children and growing little disciples that God has put in our house for us, we can uh, do that with kingdom values. All of it can be kingdom work. So I say that because I I want you um, just to think through these levels, and I'm going to ask you to think at different levels tonight. Um, So below that level where like you have this specific role in this specific season where God is asking or saying, here, I'm going to work and I want you to come alongside me. I think there's even a lower level and that's some some personal inner work. And in uh, the church, we often call that sanctification. God is doing a kingdom work in all of us. He is making you into uh, his image, more of his image to become his disciple. And when we uh, talk about sanctification, often... Uh, around here we like to have this picture of an onion and we say like that God's peeling back layers of like sin and selfishness and all sorts of things to refine us and to make us more like him a disciple that that bears his image and um, so you know I I can think back over my life I remember being 18 and my mind was just blown because I felt like God just showed me the whole answer to all my problems in life was pride 
And I was talking with a friend of mine. We're like, can you, like all of our sin, it's just, it's pride. If we could, that's just, and I really felt like at that point, God gave me that knowledge and he was like peeling back that onion. But then I could say to you, well, then I had kids and then I was like, oh, wow, I'm super selfish. Like, so God is peeling the onion of selfishness. And over time, I felt him sort of doing a work in me. Like, oh my goodness, I have an idol of comfort. And then like, oh, wow, I'm, I actually am lazy. And I don't want to work. And God is sort of now going to peel back that layer. And then, um, you know, to, to everything, like, oh, I, I didn't know, but I have a control problem. And now God's going to work on that. And God is always wanting to refine us and do a kingdom work inside us. Okay, so does that make sense? We have this big kingdom work we're all a part of. Then with specificity, there's a role that you are playing right now in time and space. And then also inside, God is doing a kingdom work in all of us. And actually, as he does that work in each of us, we are building up these other levels of his kingdom work too. So, okay, we're going to talk about that more in a bit. But I I want you to be really thinking about, okay, what is that, that place that God's put me? And what is the work that he's wanting to do in me? What's the renewal? That he is prompting me towards. But we're going to start in our, our groups tonight, in our small groups. We're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to look at page 29 in our homework. And this section is something we do every single week. It's called Find the Structure. And basically all it is, I shouldn't say all it is, page 21. And what it is, it's we're basically uh, making an outline. So we're looking, we've, I have already, if you were studying this book on your own, you could divide it up into little chunks. The Bible divides it into chapters, but then you can see as you're studying, sometimes chapters can be sort of divided up even smaller because what's happening up here doesn't really have anything to do with like something different is happening in a different part of the chapter. So we break up the chapters into smaller bite-sized chunks just so it's easier to really focus on each part. That's why we do it. So I have done the the breaking up into chunks. I have to in order to write a study guide, really simply. Um, That's why I do it, not because I don't think you can do it, because I think you could too. Um, But for each of these sections then, uh, it's a really good exercise, and you can do it after you've done your study or as you're reading, whatever, is that we give it a title. Um, I like to use words from the text most of the time. Sometimes it doesn't really work, but we just give it a title. And when you do that, you sort of end up having an outline. You can look down at four to six on this page. If someone said, what's Nehemiah four to six about? You could say, well, it's actually about this, 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 and this, right? It's it's a good way to sort of grab on to what we're learning about. Um, I just, I said to the girls this morning, I said, you know what? Sometimes I think people are tempted to, to skip over some sections and that could be a section Often we think the questions are the most important part, the questions in the study guide. And the more I spend time doing this kind of study, the more I realize that things like this, finding the structure of a passage and actually just marking are are like the most important, and repetitive reading are the most important things that you can do. The questions can help you when you feel a little bit um, stuck, I think, but you probably have your own questions and better questions. That's what studying the Bible does. You learn how to do that. Um, But for today, what I want us to do is in your group, um, I want you to talk about this together. If you have answers, awesome. Just everybody can go around and share. Try to see what's common between each other and just give one. Maybe you'll say, oh, I like hers. Let's let's use that as our groups. Um, You can actually write that person's this morning. Some people were like writing in other people's answers because they like them. That's fine. Um, We're going to do it on the big piece of paper that's on your table today. Um, and, and just so you know, I'm hoping to, that we can hang them up there so that everybody can like look at a glance and we can see sort of the other groups just for, for a quick minute. Got it? Let's, we're going to start um, because all the way across, everybody says unanimously that that first section, chapter 4, verses 1 to 14, is something to do with opposition. We're going to start there tonight. We're going to talk about opposition. And yes, actually, I would say if I had to give a title to all of these chapters together, I would say opposition to the work. That's what I would title the whole chapter. And I think that in every single section, there is some sort of opposition. And you might be thinking like, oh, how do you see that? But we'll talk through that. Um, So opposition 
to the work. I, I hope that this isn't a new concept because this is um, sort of the stuff of Genesis 3.15, right? When God um, curses Adam and Eve in the garden, he, he says that um, the seed of the serpent is going to have enmity with the seed of the woman. Right? There's this epic clash. We talked about it when we did the Psalms, and we sure talked a lot about it last year in the book of Revelation. It comes out through the whole story of um, the Old Testament. We see God's people are opposed. Um, and then you get to Jesus, and, and he actually tells his followers, like, blessed are you when people insult you and revile you and say all kinds of things against you because of me. For great is your reward in heaven. He says, like, this is what's going to happen. In the same way they oppose me, they're going to oppose you as my followers. And then we get to um, the book of Revelation, and we see actually that the, the battle is over. But this was opposition that, that, beca- that began like at the beginning of time. right? The dragon has always been pursuing the seed of the woman, and he seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, as um, First Peter said. So here's what we're going to do. We are going to look at what we can learn about the opposition to God's kingdom work um, by looking at the dialogue. Um, there's a lot of people talking. If you, if you did the markings, if you marked the dialogue, I gave you a little squiggly line. There is a lot of people who are... Um, who are saying things in all three of these chapters. So if, um, if we had more time, I would maybe just ask you to uh, list out everywhere that you see quotation marks and everywhere maybe that you marked the dialogue. But to speed up the process, I went and in chapter, um, actually the first chapter and the last chapter, because they both sort of have some opposition. We see a few people saying further opposition. Um, I took everything, all the words that were said out of chapter 4 and chapter 6, and um, I put them there. So I'm sorry if they're a little bit small. Those, the words there don't really matter too much. Um, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through every piece of dialogue, every bit. And first of all, we're going to identify who is saying it, okay? who is the speaker. And then we are going to try to give it a title if that makes sense. Maybe not give it a title. We're going to try to identify the type of dialogue it is. Does that make sense? Okay, so, well, we'll get, it as, we'll get better as we go along because we really did this morning. Um, so let's start at the very beginning. The first thing said in chapter four is um, this, this little roast. Whoops, maybe I'm... Jumping to uh, interpretation there. Okay. Um, it, it says this, like, what are these Jews doing? Are they going to rebuild it in a, whole, in a day? Are they going to sacrifice? You know, will they, will they pray to their gods and then the whole wall will go up? Are they going to, can they do anything with these burnt stones they're using to build it? And then somebody says, um, you know, what they're building, it wouldn't even hold a fox, Right? A fox couldn't even walk up on it. It's not sturdy enough for that. Okay, so let's say, um, who, who says that? Who is the speaker there? Sanballat. And Tobiah. Awesome. Okay, Sanballat and Tobiah. Let's do one thing. Yeah, let's do one thing right now. Let's talk about these guys, because we didn't really talk about this last week. Um, let's look at this for a second. Okay, this is a map, obviously. <laughs> I'm queen of stating the obvious today. Okay, so here's, here's Jerusalem. I sure don't have glasses on. There's Jerusalem in the middle. Okay, where's Sanballat from? What is said about him? Did you figure that out from the text? Okay, he's a, he's a Horonite. Okay, and a Horonite is a certain qu- kind of clan that lives in a certain place. Um, actually, if you look at verse 2, depending on your translation, chapter 4, verse 2 gives you a hint. Yeah, he's from Samaria. Do you see Samaria? On the compass rose, where is it? It's to the north, yeah. 
Okay, where's Tobiah from? Ammon. He's an Ammonite. Do you see Ammon? East. Yeah. Who else in have you uh, experienced already or read about maybe in chapters 1 to 3 that is part of their little group of cronies? Yeah, Geshem, and he's what? Where's he from? He's an Arab. Okay, so do you see this? This is actually the Arabs are this here, down here. Egypt and up here. Okay. And the Ashdodites. Do you see them? Closely related to the Philistines. We know that from our study in 1 Samuel. Right there. So uh, directionally, what could we say about the opposition? Yeah, surrounded, coming from every side. Yeah, that is what the first century reader, the original reader, would have thought um, when they are reading this book. They would have recognized right away, because they know the map better than us, of their homeland, that opposition is coming from every side. Okay, sorry to make you dizzy. Let's go back. Um, Okay, so Sambalat and Tobiah, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, let's let's give this a title. If you if you were to describe this dialogue as a type, how would you describe it? Demoralizing. Sorry, I said a whole bunch of things. I heard ridicule. Demoralizing. Yeah, it is demoralizing, for sure. Okay, it's ridicule. What else? Demoralizing. It is angry, for sure. But what is this that they're doing? Come on, what are these Jews doing? Are they going to sacrifice? They're mocking. Can you hear the tone? The tone is definitely mockery. And actually, later when we hear um, Nehemiah talking to God about this, he, he calls them taunts, right? It's taunting. So it's taunts, it's mockery, it's ridicule. It is definitely demoralizing. Um, Yes, good. Okay, the next thing that's said, let's move to the next thing, which is, hear us, O Lord. I just said it sort of briefly. I took out a few things. Turn back their taunt. Do not cover their guilt and don't blot out their sin or let not their sin be blotted out. Who is speaking here? Yeah, Nehemiah. Okay, what type of dialogue is this? General type of speech. It's a prayer. Yeah. It's a prayer. Uh, It's also, I think it's really important that we say it's a response, right? He is, because he says, turn back their taunts, he's actually responding to this. This is Nehemiah's response. And it's a prayer. What kind of a prayer would you call it? A plea and ask for help. Yeah, a request. He's asking for justice. Yeah, he is asking for justice. Yeah, sometimes when we talk about these kinds of prayers, we read them a lot in the Psalms. We say they're called imprecatory Because it's basically like, have you ever read a psalm where David says, break the bones of my enemies, Lord? Right? That's called an imprecatory prayer. It's when um, the people of God call out for justice, knowing that uh, vengeance belongs to the Lord. Okay? And they know that he will administer justice. So maybe it's not always kind, asking God to... Break your enemy's bones. But the heart behind it is saying, God is the God of justice and vengeance belongs to him. So asking him to do something about it. Okay, the next um, thing that is said is, our strength is failing. Who's speaking there? I'll let you find it. Yeah, Judah, the people of Judah. And if you had to sort of describe this kind of speech... How would you, what type of speech is it? Or how would you describe it? 
Despair. Yeah, that's a good word. Someone else said something? Pessimistic. Yeah, pessimistic. Sure, that's good. Yeah. It's discouragement, isn't it? Just kind of like despair. Yeah. So something interesting that we see here is here it was the enemies. First it was the enemies. Now it's not the enemies who are speaking words that are sort of opposing the work. It's the people themselves. The next thing that is said is something like this. They will not know or see till we come and we can kill them and stop the work. Who's speaking there? Yeah, it just says the enemies. They're enemies. So now it is enemies. This was the people, the people of Judah here, and now it's their enemies. I, I wrote sneak attack. I did this a long time ago. I was thinking of my, if you know, you know. But if you have teenagers, you might know what, is, what that is from, a reference to. Anyway, so yeah, basically they say they will not know or see till we come and kill them and stop the work. So I just reminded myself it was sort of like a sneak attack. Sorry, I forgot to change that after. Uh, how would you describe that? A threat, a threat definitely. Yeah. Okay, and so then the next thing that is said is, you must return to us. Who says it? Yes, the Jews who were not building, some translations say, who lived nearby. What kind of speech is that? Sorry, I didn't hear it. I missed it. A plea? A plea for them to return? Could be, yeah. A command could be a command saying, you must return to us. It is, yeah, actually strictly by the rules of the English language. I said it's sort of like dissuasion instead of well, maybe persuasion, right? But they are dissuading them away from the work. They're persuading them to come. Okay, the next thing that's said is this. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your home and your family. Who says it? Yeah, Nehemiah. Okay, how would you describe that? Encouragement. Yeah, encouragement, for sure. Anything else? Yeah, who said that? Yeah, good. Ra- did you say rally cry? Yeah, I think it is. It's kind of like a battle cry or like, whoops, not rattle. A rattle cry. Yeah, like a rally. They're, he's rallying the troops. Definitely. Okay, the next thing, now if we skip down to chapter 6, okay, because we said there's opposition in chapter 6, so flip the page over, and the first bit of dialogue we see says, come and let us meet together in the plain of Ono. Who says that? Sanballat is back, and Geshem. Yeah. And Tobiah, all of the above, good. Okay, how would you describe that? It's an invitation, yep. Kind of like an entreaty, kind of trying to convince him. Yep, yep, for sure. Good. Um, And the next thing that said, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Who says it? Nehemiah. Nehemiah. It's the best verse in the entire book. (laughs) And, And what, so I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. So Nehemiah says this. Let's do a little, this, this is interpretive work, what we're doing a bit here. So what kind of, of speech is this like? How would you describe this? Well, it's a it is a response. Good. 
It's a response to what? Okay, to this invitation. Good. It's an excuse? But he says he's doing a great work. Okay, I see what you're saying. Reason? Yep. That's his. How come? Yeah, the work is greater. Somebody said this morning that it sounded like focus. And I was sort of thinking it's like mission and vision. It's like a mission statement. Like he knows what he's doing, what he has been called to do. And he's just sort of restating that, his own mission or his vision. It's a great work. And he can't leave his mission. Yeah. Yeah, all good. Okay, this next one. You are rebelling and you wish to be king. Who says that? Yep. So Geshem says it, and then it also just it's reported. So people, people are saying that. People are saying that he's rebelling and he wishes to be king. So how would we describe that? What they're saying to him. Gossip, rumor. Yeah, accusation, good. The next thing that says, no such things as this, this have been done. That's for, no such thing, verse eight, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. Yeah, so who says it? (laughs) Nehemiah. Nehemiah. And it's an accusation of what? Accusation of their lie. So actually here we could go back and say this is deceit too and lies, which gossip and rumors often are. Accusations aren't necessarily, but, but he's saying that he accuses them of lying. So basically we could say that he is stating the truth, right? He's saying, nope, never happened. Okay, the next thing, let us meet in the temple. Yeah. Yeah, Shemaiah. I said Shemaiah Twain. That's how I remembered it. <laughs> Shemaiah said, uh, let us meet in the temple. Okay, this is a, someone said this morning. Okay, this is a tough one. Is it a tough one? How would you describe this? A trap. Oh, I like it. Someone else said something and I missed it. What was it? I was going to say kind of the same as the first, or like the first two, like It's an invitation. Good. Good. It's an invitation. It's a trap. Sorry, what did you say? Did, yeah, you said it's an invitation. But a deceitful one. Okay, why? Yeah, it's not like a kind invitation. Okay. Anything else, or we can move on? Yep, it is a plan. He's coming across as like I'm protecting you. Yeah. Yep. Good. Yes, this is really important, Debbie. Uh, I think we have to know a little back story for this, right? Because he's not just saying, hey, they remodeled the temple and there's this really cool room with uh, good lighting and lots of space for us to set up chairs and tables, right? He's saying, let us meet in the temple. And as Debbie said, like that, that's a compromise to Nehemiah. Why? Well, no. 
because he's not a priest or a Levite. That's right. So actually, we could say this is temptation to sin. Because for Nehemiah to go into the temple would actually be um, to transgress the law of God. He is not a priest or a Levite. He cannot go into the temple. Yeah. Maybe. Yes, that's a good thought. That's a really good interpretive thought. If they can't do it, then if we can tempt him to sin and transgress God, then God will do the work for us. Yeah, probably. Yeah, that's a good thought. And then the final thing that said, uh, these are the words of Nehemiah, and it it actually goes along with, um, with what we're just saying here. What man such as I could go into the temple and live? So how do we describe this speech, this dialogue? Especially in light of what we see here. What's the nature of what Nehemiah is saying? Reiterating the law of God. Yep, so he's reiterating the law. Reiterating. Kathy, what were you saying? Humility. Humility, yeah. 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 Where does he get his wisdom? He knows the law of God. Yeah. And in knowing the law of God, oh, I just said reiterating there, reiterating the law. In knowing the law of God, he has um, a, a vision of the truth of what's true about himself isn't it? Like he sees himself in view of God and God's law. And according to God's law, he cannot go into the temple. So he has a right view of God, which gives him a right view of himself. And he knows, uh, somebody said this morning, like he knows, he actually knows his position. He knows his, you could say he knows his place. And, and that is that not in the temple. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Uh, So if we look at this, we can maybe draw some conclusions. So we could make another interpretive jump and say, what are some things that that this passage is trying to teach us about observation? Just as you look at this, did you you resonate with anything or did, did anything pop up to you and say, yeah, that's true about opposition to the work of God? Yeah, that's really important, isn't it? That it's, it's not just the enemies. Yeah, that's good, Jackie. It's external and it's internal. It's the surrounding nations, but it's also the people of Judah and his neighbors. Right? Yeah, that's good. Opposition is internal and external. Anything else? Yeah, where does that happen? Because it doesn't start at the beginning. Well, it, it, like, talks about, oh, what are you, like, what are you trying to do, you know? And just, like, just the way you're phrasing things. Like, you don't actually have, like, a concrete point of, like, an alternative view, really. You just are, like, trying to make what I'm doing seem really, like, dumb or hurtful or dangerous or something. Yeah. It's very, like, accusatory. Yeah. And it, it starts out kind of like, you know, they're, they're mocking all the people. And then it turns actually very personal here in chapter 6, where they're going, after, um, they're going after Nehemiah. And what are they doing? What, what are they going after? His motives. His motives, yeah. So it's really like, it's, they're really going after his motives. Like, are your motives pure? No, you just actually want to be king, right? You're, you're rebelling. Yeah. 
I think one thing here, um, you know, when they, when they tell, they say to him, come meet us in Ono, one of the words I had that, um, to describe that is sort of like, it's a distraction. They're trying to distract him, like, come, come do this, like, come into the temple, or come meet us in this plane, and they send that letter like four times, um, trying to get him to do it, or, or even saying, like, our strength is failing, none of us can build. It's all distract, like, it would be a distraction away from the work right? Mm -hmm. It is discouraging. There's a fair bit of deceit involved down here. Deceit and lies. Um, It's it's definitely not necessarily true things. Some things are true. The people's strength were fading or failing. Um, And he was using some burnt stones. And, And to be honest, even the Jewish people, if you know the book of Haggai, they looked at the wall and the temple, and what did they do? They burst into tears. They wept. Because, actually, it did not look awesome compared to what Solomon had built. Yeah, yeah. So it was not great. Uh, I think it's really good for us to just take a minute and get into the original reader's um, mindset and know that Sambala and Tobiah... And all the, these surrounding nations, they're not opposing um, the people of God because they think differently or because they are not their people. Actually, they are opposing after um, or out of like jealousy, right? They are afraid that the people of God are going to flourish and then they're going to lose their position. Because it says Sambalat is a governor. He's been made a governor. Um, and he sort of probably has some say in this area of Jerusalem, since it's technically not really a city. Um, they have a fair bit of influence. They're probably trading back and forth with these people. They're able to get what they need. Um, and so it's in their best interest that this wall is not built. So they are going after them because they stand to lose something if this wall is built. So we had a bit of time to do that activity of finding the structure on page 21 in our workbook. And it was good to see each other's answers, but one of the most significant pieces of learning that came out of that for us that I want to share with you, our podcast listener, is that a question came up saying, is this activity of finding the structure and giving a title to the sections, is it observation or is it interpretation? And this is such a great question because it just shows that our minds are starting to see the difference between observing the text and seeing what it says, what is there, and making an interpretation or applying um, some of our understanding or summarizing uh, the action or the point of the passage. So I would say if you went back at the very end and then gave every section a title, you are probably doing interpretation. But if you do it at the beginning as a way to just get a handle on what is in every chapter, you should be doing it as observation. Because at that point, you haven't dug into everything yet. And and I might argue, um, hey, both, both are great, but I might argue that to do it as observation can be a more effective part of your Bible study and give you a better view um, of the book as a, or the passage as a whole to, to jump into. Um, so I would say if you do want to do it first as observation, here's a quick tip. Use the words from the text. Use only words that you see in the text. And we often say it doesn't need to be a sentence that makes sense. It can just be four words um, like Nehemiah, opposition, Sambalat, building or something like that. And you get an idea that, okay, this chunk in this chunk, Nehemiah is being opposed by Sambalat or whatever your four words are. See if you can pick four words from the text, uh, put them in order as sort of the title of that section, even if it doesn't make sense. Uh, I hope that's helpful and it is a good skill to keep practicing. I think it will just really um, equip us to do 
better and more effective and actually more transformational and more meaningful Bible study. So after we did that, we um, also spent some time in our small groups looking at some of our homework questions. And then we did try, after we did some interpretive work through the dialogue um, piece of, of observations, then we wanted to say, okay, how do we need to apply this? So we used um, some questions uh, in the study guide, page 25, I, I think question number five, and, and we just answered this question that said, okay, let's get in our mind this area that God has placed us in time and place to do his kingdom work, whatever that is, whether it is a business you're a part of, whether it is staying at home, taking care of young children, whether you are a grandmother or retired and you are caring for people in all different ways and all different stages of life, what is the kingdom work that God is wanting to do in the world around you and wants to use you to partner with him to do that? And then at that like more inner level to what is the, the work, the kingdom work, the spiritual renewal and rebuilding that God is wanting to do inside you. And after identifying that, let's, let's share with each other, what's the opposition we're facing? Is it external opposition? Is it internal? Um, like what is the nature of the opposition? And then we answered a question that said, what does it look like to be spiritually and physically prepared to withstand that opposition? In the same way that the people in Nehemiah stood on that wall and they built with a hammer in one hand and a sword on the other, what does that mean for us today? How can we do kingdom work with the view of being prepared that opposition will come? What are the tools that, that help us withstand that opposition? So we asked um, our, our women to be to be vulnerable with each other, to take a risk and, and to share um, in a way that we could pray for each other. So if you are studying along with us, I would really encourage you to think about who can you share this with? Who can you talk about this opposition that you are facing um, to the kingdom work God is wanting and calling you to do right now? And how can you be accountable to each other? How can you pray for each other to withstand? And how can you maybe brainstorm together how you can work to be physically and spiritually prepared for the opposition that we know is coming to kingdom work? Okay, here's the rest of our time together in chapters four to six of Nehemiah. I, I hope that you have seen that uh, one thing that one way that Nehemiah does not respond um, to the taunts and the mockery, the jeering, or even the lies about himself is he's not feeling that he needs to get up there and like tell his truth, even though his truth is the truth, right? You don't see him really worried that he has to stand up for God. He does know that he just has to keep doing the work and somehow um, God is going to take care of the rest. Um, we can get a little bit caught up, I think, in trying to convince other people who, and I'm going to use this phrase from Nehemiah, have no portion, share, or inheritance in the people of God. Do you know what I mean? Uh, why they are wrong. Uh, and I think often we can go to great effort to be showing them why they are wrong, but actually they have no portion at this point, right, or share in the people of God. We always have this, there's this instinct in us that we need to go to Egypt, to people who are still slaves, and we need to give them the law. If they just knew the Ten Commandments, then they would be okay. But what needs to happen to people who are enslaved? They need to be redeemed out of sin. They need to be brought to Mount Sinai and in a relationship with God first, and then they can be given the law. Uh, so Nehemiah does not seem overly concerned with like standing up for God's truth. I think he feels like God can take care of it himself. And what he does know is that he has work to do and he cannot come down. He's going to stay on the wall and he's going to keep doing what God told him to do. Um, I think if, if we had Nehemiah here and we asked him or if we could just look at the whole book, I think it's fairly plain that Nehemiah tells us, you know, in the face of opposition, here's what you got to do. Two things you should do, maybe, and two things not to do. The first two things to do is pray and work. 
Pray and work. That's what he does. He, in the face of this, this roast, these mocking jeers, um, he doesn't come up with his own, like, good comeback. Right? Who does he talk to? He doesn't even talk to them. Who does he talk to? God. He prays. It's the first thing he does. He's always praying. Have you seen that? Yeah, it's not going to stop. Before he does every little thing. Like, it's not always these long, eloquent prayers too, right? Sometimes it just like says that they prayed and then they got back to work or something like that. Um, Nehemiah always remembers the, the Lord. He knows who God is. He knows he's great and he's awesome and that he is sovereign over his plan. So he's not too concerned with fighting battles that are not his to fight. He is concerned about doing the work. And if he has to work in a prepared way, he will. Um, you know, when we look at that, he, he rallies the battle. He, he rallies the people um, to sort of, he says, fight for your homes and your family. But then he also says, God will fight for us. And, and you're expecting sort of something a little bit because you can envision in your mind all these people and they're working and some of them are carrying s- stones, but they have swords. And, and it's a little bit like Revelation where you're thinking, okay, when's the battle going to happen? And did you notice the battle? It, it doesn't really happen, does it? No, it just says, he just said, uh, when our enemies found out that God had frustrated their plan. Right? God is always working. God's doing something. God is fighting for these people, and Nehemiah knows it. So first, he says, go to him. Pray. That's what you should do first, is just pray. Second of all, get to work. Just get to work, right? Um, I think we have to think about this. Like, like Nehemiah and the people in, in chapter 4, verse 6, it says, I love this line, the people had a mind to work. So the wall was built because they had a mind to work. You know what I have a mind to do? Not work. Yes. What did you say? Lay on my couch. couch. Exactly. I have a mind to relax, to coast, to do nothing, to be lazy. Yeah. That is my natural self. I do not have a mind to go and clean bathrooms when I have a couple hours at home and I know that actually that's what my family needs. Or I need to get a little bit ahead in cooking for my family or some of these things around my house that I know need to be done. I do not have a mind to do that work. I have a mind to sit down and maybe look at my phone or read a book. But the people have a mind to work and they are prepared for opposition. So I think it's good for us to consider this question we talked about with each other. What does it look like to be prepared for this opposition? And then say, you know what? I'm going to work with a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other. How are we prepared? How might you stay on the wall? What does that look like? And not come down. If it sounds to you a little bit like it takes endurance to keep going in the... um, yeah. In God's kingdom work, it does, right? And we're not surprised because the writers of the the New Testament talk about this all the time. I just wrote down a few. This is just what came to top of mind. In Hebrews, the writer says, run with perseverance the race that is set before you and also keep watch that you don't drift from the truth you heard. In Ephesians, Paul says, be prepared to take your stand against the devil's schemes. And stand firm, clad in the armor of God. I kept thinking about Ephesians 6 the whole time, that lots of you did too. Um, The whole time I was reading this today, the armor of God, being equipped and prepared with the armor of God. In 1 Timothy, Paul says, keep fighting the good fight of faith. In Galatians, he says, do not be weary in doing good. And James says, remain steadfast in the trial and you will receive the crown of life. So first pray and then work. You know what? Unfortunately, we cannot be a lazy follower of Jesus. We can't. There's work to do and it is hard, so um, we have to do it. But here's two things we shouldn't do. First of all, don't work alone. Did you notice how much unity were in these verses? We We didn't get to dissect every single verse. There's so much there in three chapters, but there's so much that talks about how the people work together. They're like, you can envision them lined up 
along the wall, like some people standing behind, protecting these people who are building, or those, you know, Nehemiah is standing next to the trumpeter, and he, if there's any threat that comes, he's going to blow the trumpet, and then what are the people to do? Run there where the sound of the trumpet is to help and and to fight for their people. Um, They work shoulder to shoulder, they're standing together in families. I, I think it's, it's, important to remember that the people of your of of god's family the people of the church other christians are your new family this is the new family of god and we need to support each other in the work and and then recognize that we don't do it alone and we can reach out and we should reach out to people and say hey this work is hard and uh, for you think about who is it that you need to encourage this week Um, how can you inspire endurance in the people who are working side by side The second thing not to do, this is the last thing, is do not fear. Um, So if you looked really closely, I I skipped over all of chapter 5, which is my favorite part. Uh, There's just not enough time. But I think one of the most important things to see in chapter 5 is the repetition of fear. Because fear also comes up in chapter 4, and it comes up in chapter 6 too. In chapter 4, Nehemiah is telling the people, don't be afraid of your enemies who oppose you. And in chapter 6, Nehemiah keeps saying that his enemies, and I think this is why conspiracy is a good, is a good word there, his enemies are, are trying to make him fear so he will stop working. He says that three times, right? And then we see that word fear again in this middle chunk, in, in the center of the section in chapter 5. And it's not that kind of fear, it's a different kind of fear. It's fear of God. Right? Nehemiah says to the people um, who are treating each other with injustice because there is a famine, they don't have enough food. So how they respond to this is actually they, there is this internal opposition to the work, the kingdom work that's going on. And they're like borrowing, they're having to borrow money to buy food. And then the people who are lending say, yeah, I'll lend you money at a really high rate of interest. Or else they're having to sell their own family members into slavery so that they have money to pay the taxes that go to the king. They, they're sort of like opposing each other. They are treating each other like loan sharks and pawnbrokers instead of like family. And instead of caring for each other, they're actually acting with great injustice towards their brothers and sisters. Okay, so Nehemiah comes into this and he says, shouldn't we fear God? Shouldn't we fear God? If we fear God, we're not going to treat each other like this. And I think the supposition behind that is that when we have fear, when we fear something, our first instinct is always self-preservation. And often to preserve ourselves or our comfort or our control, we're going to disadvantage others. We have to. Uh, and the easiest way to call this to your mind so you can see the picture is to say the word toilet paper, right? During COVID. So think about it. Just think for a minute. Like your family potentially will not have toilet paper. Like really just let that sit. <laughs> And actually, if you're honest with yourself, you can see like, wait a minute, you can start to feel that, right? That scarcity that you feel in your chest, that's like the fear of scarcity. What is going to happen if we can't get toilet paper? And what's the natural response? You saw it on the news. You saw it in Langley Costco, probably, or Surrey Costco. What is it? What's Hoard. Hoarding. That's right. Self-preservation that disadvantages others. Okay. Uh, that is what fear does. And Nehemiah actually says, do not, do not fear. And to be fair, he says, don't fear man. Instead, have a right fear. Fear of God. Have a fear of God. So fear of man is when you um, seek man's approval above God, that you value what man say. The work would have stopped if Nehemiah valued everything that was being said on the left above what God had moved his heart to do and what he knew God's work was. If he valued that above, above God's word, the work would have stopped, okay? But, but Nehemiah actually didn't value um, those words because he does not fear man. Instead, um, Nehemiah fears God. 
Um, he values God's word above, above everything else. So let's just say, in, in case I need to be explicit about this, what is fear of God? It is not being afraid of God. It is not fear of punishment because you think he is this big being up in the sky who is going to smite you with a hammer if you step out of line. Okay? We do not have that fear of God. Why? Because of Jesus. Yeah, because of Jesus. There is not that fear. There is no fear in love, and perfect love casts out all fear. Jesus brings to us the perfect love of God. We have that on his behalf. So it is not that kind of fear, but it is a kind of fear that, that leads, uh, leaves you feeling uh, great reverence and awe and wonder and actually adoration that this God, this great God, this good and loving God is pleased with me even though I keep turning to the wrong way or I keep dropping the ball or I tend to do things like to, to fall to my sin nature and yet this good, pleasant God still looks on me um, with favor and love and it's just like, Okay, that right there is the feeling of the fear of God. And this fear of God enables Nehemiah to continue the work. He says, I feared God, so I didn't take the money that, that I was supposed to take, and I just kept doing the work. We continued in the work. But, but that first part, I didn't take the money, I didn't take the food and the, the, the money that they owed me for the, what was it called, the governor's... Yeah, like they, he didn't take that. Um, <clears throat> in, instead, his fear of God causes um, and fuels this radical, we said, generosity in Nehemiah because he fears God. What we see is this picture, this beautiful picture at the end of chapter five of radical generosity and actually sacrificial love for the people. So it begins in scarcity and famine. There's all that injustice. Um, People don't have enough to eat. And by the end of the chapter, what, what is it ending with? This abundant feasting. You're hearing about 150 people and all the food that is coming all the time. And everybody is fed. The people have what they need. They are provided for to do the work. And is that not a gospel picture of Jesus? Right? I, I think that is where we see the gospel. Um, Ultimately, this fear of God, running to him instead of running away from him, running to God for salvation, results in a seat at his table. A seat at the king's table where it is abundant feasting. Everything you need to do the work that he has called you to do. So in the face of opposition, God is going to care for you. He will provide for you. He will even pour out an abundance of his spirit on you, and he will give you the power to trust him and to obey and to keep working. Yeah. Um, I, I, I was thinking, and when I was thinking about this, it also reminded me of Psalm 23. Um, and this is how we'll end. Psalm 23 talks about this God that we fear as the good shepherd. You know a lot of these words. Um, and even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's, that's pretty intense opposition, right? The valley of the shadow of death. We can fear no evil, the psalmist says, for he is with us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. And he prepares a table for us, where? In the presence of our enemies. That's right. In the midst of the opposition, the good shepherd provides a table where you will be cared for, that you will have what you need, even in the presence of your enemies. It says he anoints our heads with oil and our cup overflows. And surely the presence of the Lord will always be with you and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is the promise of this good shepherd, this good governor, this good king, this abundant feasting table. And I would just say to you finally that the worst thing that could happen to you is not, and to me, is not that um, your views or your beliefs or your faith in God or your kingdom work would be opposed. That's not the worst thing that could happen. The worst thing actually is that you might miss out at sitting at this table 
that you might miss out on the abundant feast that is Jesus and his spirit uh, providing everything that you need, um, sustenance, provision, guidance in abundantly, right? That, that is it, abundance and sacrificial love. And that is what we have. That is what we have because of Jesus, even in the face of opposition, even in the presence of our enemies. So I, I do pray that you remember that this week. As you're going with that opposition and you turn instead to pray and then to work and then say, how am I going to fear and adore and revere God right now instead of um, humans or mankind? Well, friends, thanks for studying along. And remember, for any of the resources you heard in the teaching podcast, check out crossridge.church forward slash study. We'll see you again soon.